This is the Deep Color podcast series. Deep Color is an oral history project that features artists and arts professionals discussing their work, ideas, and lives, offering listeners a forthright and unique understanding about the process, experiences, and people behind the artistic pursuit. My name is Joseph Hart. I produce and facilitate this series. These recordings are casual, long form, and unscripted. Deep Color is supported by The Armory Show as it celebrates its 25th anniversary. The Armory Show is New York City's premier art fair and leading cultural destination for discovering and collecting the world's most important 20th and 21st century art. The fair features presentations by leading international galleries, innovative artist commissions, and dynamic public programs. Since its founding in 1994, The Armory Show has served as a nexus for the art world inspiring dialogue, discovery, and patronage in the visual arts. This episode profiles Mark Dion. Mark is an American artist whose work examines the ways in which dominant ideologies and public institutions shape our understanding of history, knowledge, and the natural world. He is known for his spectacular and often fantastical cabinets, modeled after the wonder cabinets of the 16th century, and his large-scale public works that range from architecture projects to print interventions in newspapers. His most recent work includes the Amateur Ornithologist Clubhouse, a Captain Nemo-like interior constructed in a vast gas tank located in Essen, Germany. This conversation was recorded at the 2019 Armory Show in the Media Lounge on Pier 94. Yeah, um... You know, the, the thing that brought us here is this 25th anniversary of, of the Armory Show. And uh, they have a pretty great timeline on, the, on their website that sort of lists uh, a little bit of the history and a lot of images, f- photographs from the first iteration of the fair. And you were there yeah, in I the beginning. There, certainly. I'd love to hear what it felt like being there and what, how you participated and what your role was in the fair. And this is in 1994, correct? 94, yep, 94, yeah. 95, 96. I was sort of in all of those. And, you know, it was a really interesting, exciting, strange time. Um, I, I think it feels, you know, it feels very different, you know, remarkably different from the fair that exists here today. And, uh, you know, the fact looking around the space as, as, uh, as I can, uh, you know, it's, it's an entirely different crowd. The fair at that time, certainly um, in, in the beginning, the opening would have been much more like the kind of parties you would have experienced in the East Village in the 80s. You know, it was, it was a kind of raucous, free-for-all, very community-based, full of young artists, uh, you know, maybe a scattering of uh, a sort of collector class. But, yeah. but mostly it was made by and for community, uh, and it's certainly in the, in the dealer's mind, aspirational that it would become something like this, yeah. but it wasn't there yet. Not by a long shot. Was that a goal um, for what you can remember in the beginning? Like, or was it just like, we're going to get this, uh, like our peer group together, put on this, uh, you know, exhibition. There's a little bit of performance involved. We'll see where it goes. Or was there an intention setting out? I think for the, for the gallerists, they could see the future in a way. I mean, they could really understand that this is what was going to happen or something like this was going to happen. I, I don't think anyone anticipated the... Um, commercial juggernaut that the art world was about right. to become but but I do think that they had a longer view and I th- 
for most of us artists, we were just kind of interested in having a good time and also in doing what it's really hard to resist uh, not doing as an artist is biting the hand that feeds you. So, so participating, but at the same time participating uh, in a way that also uh, satirized the um, the aspirations of right, the gallerists. Right, and that sort of, I mean, nudges me to think about one of the installations slash performances that you did. In was was the Lemonade Stand in '94? What year was that? The Lemonade Stand, I believe, was in '96. Yeah. So, so by that time, there was a little bit of a template. Okay. Of what the fair was like and what the goals of the fair were, and so I wanted to do a piece that, in some ways, made fun of the aspirational aspect of the right. gallerists and their uh, and their attempts at uh, entrepreneurial culture. You right, know? right. So, and of course, most, you know, most American kids experience entrepreneurial culture first with the lemonade stands. Yeah, it's, a ve- it's like an early introduction to capitalism. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so this piece, not only does it, was it meant to poke fun at, at my friends, uh, Christian Nagel and Colin DeLand, who are sponsoring the project, but also, uh, it does have a quite strong biographical aspect because I had a lemonade stand myself. And yeah. Growing up in Fairhaven, Massachusetts, at the end of Blackburn Street, I set up a lemonade stand when I was probably about six. Mm-hmm. And since I was, you know, based on the coast, what I could get and get for free were seashells. So I sold lemonade and seashells, just as I am in the lemonade stand here. It's, it's a mix of a recreation and the authentic thing, right? I mean, the time is different, but it's the actual lemonade stand from oh, yeah. then. This is the lemonade stand, which, which I had thought was long ago destroyed. So I'm, I'm working on a project right now with Storm King, and they were going through the inventory of the gallery and sent me a list of things they wanted, and on it was the lemonade stand. So I called uh, Tanya Benactor, and I said, you know, this doesn't exist. Yeah. And she said, oh, oh it sure does. We've been storing that since the demise of American fine arts, and it's actually in pretty good condition. And so much to my surprise, it exists. All of the elements still exist. Uh, and, you know, just walking over to uh, walking over to it right now was the first time I've seen it since 1996. So it's a little bit emotionally heavy for oh, me. Oh, I bet. I was going to ask. I mean, that must have hit you in a certain way. All those memories flooding back, the actual object. Um, you know that sort of memory we, uh, we we attach to objects. Absolutely, and you know, and my memories of Colin and Pat, who you know are sort of, are quite celebrated in this moment, right? Um, uh, talking about the the uh, origins of the fair, but Colin and Pat really were exceptional people. Yeah. You know, they were exceptionally intelligent. They were really interesting. Colin had this very serious um, punk streak in him that that he never lost and uh, they were always or he especially was always really uh, engaged in not providing the service that was expected of him a complicated guy and in, 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 a, in a really intelligent and sophisticated way yeah let's clarify a little bit for listeners that might not know who who Colin and Pat were they were kind of the, the people that decided to put the fair together originally, no? I mean, I know there was a team, but they were key players. Yeah, they were key players. And I think that they were sort of part of the brain trust of that team. And, uh, and, you know, they each had galleries. They were at at, uh, the sort of 
high water mark of the galleries. They were right across from each other in, in Worcester Street, on Worcester Street in Soho. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, and then Pat also had this uh, uh, vicious little white chihuahua <laughs> named Chichi, who, yeah. even though it was Pat's dog, worked at American Fine Arts with Colin. So every day, Chichi would be delivered to Colin's office where um, she would terrorize anyone who walked through the door. <laughs> and at, at night, at, in the evening, uh, we went back to Pat. Right, yeah. right. And you had a professional relationship with Colin, too. He was, you worked with him as an artist dealer, no? Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, Colin was my, the first gallery I was very committed to and was very committed to me. So we, we worked uh, just probably since, I would say, 88, 89. Yeah. We worked together and until his death. And that was American Fine Art. American Fine Art. Yeah. Um, can you talk about him as a dealer? I mean, one of the things that when, when I have an opportunity to sort of speak about the market and art dealers, um, sort of the, the different personalities that show up in the work and how they how they handled the business of being a gallerist and, and uh, cultivating relationships with artists. It's tricky because yeah. he, he was a complicated person. You know, I, I literally had collectors coming up to me saying, I tried to buy a work of yours, <laughs> and and he would not sell it to me. You uh-huh. know, he uh, he was you know he had his own way of doing things. He was uh, his his DNA was extremely um, uh, resistant to authority. Right? Huh. I mean, and that's just the that's kind that punk streak. Maybe you're talking about. Yeah, that's the kind of person uh, he was, mm-hmm. and and uh, and um, radically unconventional. Yeah, um, and as I said. Ex- Extremely sharp, with a great knowledge of uh, philosophy, of the history of art, real interest in um, the history of American art. Extremely knowledgeable about 19th century American art. Mm-hmm. Just a really sharp guy. Right. So we're sort of talking about the ingredients uh, of the the original incarnation of the fair. Um, it wasn't even called the Armory Fair. I feel like we need to mention that. It was called the Gramercy International. I think that's art right. Show yeah. or yes. art fair. Yes. Um, you know, Colin and, and Pat were instrumental players, but can you name some of the other ingredients that, that may have sort of laid the groundwork um, that that sort of unfolded into what we're sitting in today? Okay, well, the first thing you have to know was in the Gramercy Hotel. That's right, it was in a hotel. Right, right so right. It was several floors of the hotel were emptied out, and so work had to be shown in, in the hotel under conditions like you cannot put a hole in the wall. So... Uh, you can't significantly change the room in a way that it can't be put back together again. You can't paint the walls. So, uh, you know, it was re- it was very challenging. Lots of restrictions. Lots of restrictions, especially if you're going to show, well, not only if you're going to show installation, but if you're just going to simply show painting. And, and literally some people just laid things out on the bed. Yeah. And, uh, and some people did enormously ambitious projects. I, I recall, I think it was Thomas Hirschhorn building an entire cave in one of these spaces. Mm-hmm. So uh, the first project I did with them is was a reconstruction of a child's bedroom in which every single item, including the wallpaper, uh, was based on a love of dinosaurs. Oh, right. So depictions of dinosaurs, this kind of, uh, uh, you know, an absolute mad, uh, fantas- phantasmagorical dinosaur bedroom. Mm-hmm. And so we had to you know, pin the wallpaper to the to the wall with with the, the smallest little uh, pins, and right. it, it, was, it was everything was complicated. Right. I feel like it's important to point out that the artist typically will find a solution to that restriction. Right. You know, I, I think that's one of the you know great things we bring to uh, solving problems is finding that loophole. And the whole thing had a had a, a you know a very much a 
do-it-yourself character. Yeah. When the doors opened to the public, half of the rooms were not finished. Uh, you know, there was a certainly a very different emphasis on conventions of professionality, right? right? And and so, but it also was joyful and fun yeah. and very much um, community-based. And and I, I guarantee I will be here. You know, a good part of the day today, I will probably not see a single artist of my, you know, of my initial that circle group, yeah. you yeah. know, and uh, it was the opposite then. Even, right. even if people were quite resistant and when we were all very wary and, and a little bit hostile toward the commercial aspects of the art world, right. we, we still were there right. to sort right. of check it out and to also support uh, those of us who were in it. And so... And, uh, you know, I think Colin himself had a, had a sort of tongue-in-cheek relationship to this. Yeah. Um, and, but I, I do think certainly, I mean, you know, Pat was, um, had one of the best eyes in the art world, was, was also a genius. And, and I can easily imagine that she saw the potential in what this could become. Right. Yeah. I mean, I feel, I've heard the line that um, a good uh, sort of, sign of genius is seeing opportunity and then acting on it yeah. so maybe there's a little bit of genius in there with pat's part absolutely but yeah. but also i'm not sure how they would feel about this yeah you know because it is professionalized in a way that they were not about and it's uh, it doesn't have the intimacy uh you know the fair today doesn't have the intimacy that they liked it doesn't have the edginess that they embodied both in their own practice right. and also with their work so i'm not sure um, I'm not sure they would really be behind what what the, how the fair is understood. Evolved. Understood. I mean, I think that sort of celebratory spirit and that peer group aspect of it really comes through in the photographs and images that I that I've seen uh, of that time period. I mean, I have this picture of you here at the original lemonade stand, and right. I think this is that's uh, Christian Noggle. That, that's yeah. Christian Noggle. Yeah. And then here's a here's an image of one of the um, objects that you presented. Can you can you tell? I mean. I'll describe it real quick. It looks like an, uh, uh, a model of a beetle, but but oversized or some sort of insect. That's exactly right. That's, yeah. that's called a necrophora's beetle. It's the okay. kind of beetle that survives off of eating dead stuff. Okay. So again, you know, in all of these pieces, there are these somewhat hidden barbs. Yeah. Uh, you know, they're not unknowable, but the viewer has the responsibility to tease this out. And, right. And like. A lot of my peers interested in the sort of notion of institutional critique. The the deeper you dig, the more you see that there is at least ambivalence, if right. not hostility, to the to the context of um, of showing in the commercial world. Right, right. Maybe this is a good spot to pivot towards your practice and your artwork. And one of the reoccurring and you as an, and you as an artist, one of the reoccurring themes of this project, the Deep Color Project, is is talking with artists about how they self-identify as artists mm -hmm. and how they describe what they do to other people in social settings and professional settings. So, I mean, you've been making art for a, a while. Um, how do you identify yourself as an artist? What type of artist do you say you are? And then, and then how do you describe the, the work that you make? I mean, you know, I think one of the things that separates me from a lot of my peers is that I am able to uh, exhibit in other parts of the country, right? I, I work a lot in places like Oklahoma and Texas and Kansas, and uh, and so that gives me an opportunity. It gives me an opportunity to 
um, have to identify myself in ways that uh, I can't make a lot of assumptions right, about. Right, because you're, you're, you're speaking to a lot of different types of audiences. Exactly. Yeah. So, so most of the people I'm speaking to don't have degrees in art history and don't have never walked into a commercial gallery and have never been to the MoMA. And so um, it can be a little bit complicated, but I describe myself as a, a visual artist mm -hmm. who works on issues of the culture of nature. Now that has to be unpacked yeah. as well. And what forms, so people's question after that is, so do you paint? One thing uh, that I have learned in, in spending a lot of time outside of New York City is the, the benefits of actually just slowing down and yeah. explaining yourself and, um, and creating a kind of open dialogue and investing the time to talk to people who don't come from exactly the same background and you know I, I you know I come from a very blue-collar family mm -hmm. so there's not a person in my family who would recognize what I'm doing as art in in, in a uh, in an easy way so right. I, I also have to untangle things with my uh, family as well For so sure. so I'm used to doing that and and it's it, and I also don't want to make work that only addresses people who have advanced degrees in, right. in theory and in art history and fine art so, uh, you know, I, I've always made work that I believe tries to meet the public halfway. It's a yeah. very important thing for me. So, um, That's well said. Yeah, it, it's important to, uh, 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 you know, that's, that's also one of the reasons why I really like to work in the public realm is I, I don't, I, you know, and when I work in a gallery, I can make a lot of assumptions about the person who's going to walk through that door. Yes. And when I work in open space, it's not the case. And, and I find that incredibly rewarding and interesting yeah i think it's a good skill too to sort of figure out what sort of information that viewer or person you're speaking with needs in order to become comfortable because i think the general public finds the world of art challenging or um intimidating so trying to figure out how to package what we say and give them what they need to hear is a good skill to have you know, I, I try to, in some way, put the, the notion that this is art in the background. Uh, largely because putting it in the foreground can, uh, can uh, in some way, prejudice people yeah. because of the, uh, the very reasons you're just mentioning, yeah. right? Uh, and so if they have an engaging, challenging, interesting experience, and then they find out that that's a work of art, for me, that's more successful than them uh, seeing something as a work of art and then having that experience. So I, you know, I want the work to have that transformative quality, and it works better if they don't approach it with the baggage of what they imagine art is, and and the emotional baggage of how art has made them feel uninformed and uh, and uh, and uh, not respected. Let's talk a little bit more about about your work. Uh, so when I think about your work, I think of it as being site specific. I think of it sort of straddling. Um, installation and sculpture and performance because I know sometimes there's a performative aspect of it um, there's an edge for me there's an educational component to it because I think where often your work is displayed museums institutions and then also has this kind of layer of presenting sometimes like something you might see in a natural history museum do those sort of ways of me describing where how your work kind of lands are they okay with you would you add detract well, well, I, I, I mean, I, I think it's, I mean, that's a, a, a great summary. It's very perceptive. I mean, those are that notion of straddling um, installation and sculpture is important mm -hmm. to me, and being able to dip in and out of those worlds. Uh, 
the uh, the site specificity is essential for me the first aspect of working on a project is to go to a site and listen to the site and be open to what the site sort of tells me and of course I don't go empty-handed I have my own uh, you know decades of of concerns that and uh, and a foundation in uh, the issues I'm interested in that I bring to that site but I am still looking for that thing that makes that site special yeah. and important and uh, and the uh, whether that's a figure from history or it's the um, the sort of social ecology of the place or the historic ecology I am looking for something that speaks to people from there and yeah. also speaks about that site to people elsewhere yeah it's great I think like allowing the site or the object sometimes to sort of present the idea and then you kind of unfold it a little bit more it sort of leads you through into some new territory right um, I, that's yeah. one of the reasons I have a, I just have a very hard time doing stuff for galleries because I, I just don't really have questions for white walls and, and I really make work in relationship to place and if I don't have something to bounce off of it it, it just it's not stimulating to yeah. me it's not exciting to me it's just I just don't have questions for the non-space of yeah, the gallery. It kind of falls flat. Yeah. Um, the other thing I think, another layer of your work, is that sometimes, particularly the installations, uh, when you're creating spaces or rooms that are filled with ephemera and objects, um, it feels like that family or friend that has a, a room that's just full of really cool stuff. And um, you want to sort of sift through it and, and ask questions about where these things come from and, and maybe how they tie together, which brings me into this idea of collecting. Um, maybe you could talk a little bit about your process in, in terms of how you, how you gather the, the objects and the things that you present in, in these different installation and spaces. Do you, where do you find all this stuff? You know, I, I work on this all the time, <laughs> every day. Yeah. You, know, um, you know, we're here on the piers yeah. and on our way here, you know, uh, my wife parked the car, and we parked the car right next to New York City's largest Salvation Army, which is down the street here. And most of the Salvation Armies here are not very inspiring, but that one, because it is so isolated, actually can have some pretty interesting things. Of course. So, you know, I couldn't just pass by the opportunity to duck in there and get a little bit of shopping done. Uh -huh. uh, and you know, I'm, what I'm looking for... With the idea that these things you find might be materials for a project. Oh, right. Oh, I'm, yeah, I, yeah. yeah, I'm usually working on about a dozen projects at the same time. Wow. And, and some of them may approximate something like a period room. So they're different. They are attempts to try to look back and understand people's attitudes at different times and different places. So I'm trying to populate them in, in a kind of interesting way, uh, which means I need background objects which kind of set the scene mm -hmm. and I need foreground objects which really have the burden of making the meaning yeah and so it takes a long time to accumulate things that have this patina of use yeah and that um, typify one moment or another so uh, I am just constantly out at flea markets and flea junk markets. stores and antique malls but also I'm collecting rubbish as well yeah. I'm, I'm I'm you know in coastal New England, spending the day picking up bottle caps and... Stuff that's washed up on yeah, the shore. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So, so uh, I'm really fulfilling a lot of different um, uh, searches when I, when I go to a place. The, the other thing that I sometimes think about, particularly with this, I mean, this isn't... Is this one of your... Would you consider this one of your curiosity cabinets? 
this piece here? It's, yeah, it looks I'm, like a like a like a series of shells with a plastic jugs that I that I think. If I remember correctly, these came from the shore of Alaska. Yeah, that's yeah. right. That's a piece called the Cabinet of uh, Marine Debris. Uh -huh. and, that, and that's a piece that embodies an expedition that I did with uh, Pam Longobardi and a number of other artists and scientists off the coast of Alaska, looking at the spot where the uh, Pacific gyre is, is discharging vast amounts of plastics trash in, in shockingly remote uh, Alaskan islands. So mm -hmm. places where there really are you know, people, there have never been any people, they're very remote. But if you go there, you have to you know, get off the boat and wade through knee-deep piles of trash. Yeah. And so, uh, so this is a piece that, in a way, is installed to reference that Cabinet of Wonder, which is, in a, in a sense, you know, the Cabinet of Wonder and our moment are bookended by this idea, on one hand, of European, uh, uh, you know, the, the sort of, European exuberance of curiosity and discovery as they've realized that the world is so much bigger than they ever imagined and full of peoples and things and plants and animals that they could have never dreamt was there. And then our moment on the other end of the bookend, which is in which we are mourning these things as as they disappear, yeah, yeah. and largely because of the introduction of colonial and capitalist culture, right? Mm -hmm. So, so I'm often when I'm referencing the cabinet wonder, I am trying to make a reference to these to this book ending. Right. Um, I wanted to uh, use this as a model to talk about because I, I, you know, the organization in these in these cabinets and in these displays and in these presentations seems important, and I imagine that there's some real pleasure that comes out with figuring out the right sort of hierarchy for presenting these things, the right sort of color scheme or color narrative. Can you talk about the sort of organizational aspect of, of colliding all these different pieces together? Sure. I mean, just because I'm a conceptually oriented artist and, a, and an artist who um, does work politically doesn't mean that I don't care about composition yeah. and, and about yeah. these formal relationships too. I mean, I think that that's, you know, that's the essential backbone uh, that makes a work like that uh, function. In a project like this, where you're collecting discarded items, these discarded items are attractive because they're meant to be attractive, mm -hmm. right? These, there's, a, there's an army of, of uh, marketing researchers who know how to color these bottles and give them a form that is desirable. These, these objects look great because they were built to be desired. Mm -hmm. And then now we're just looking at the refuse of these empty bottles. And they also have, you know, particularly with these ones that are, you know, have the, you know, use the word patina. These have, these are whether the salt water of the ocean sort of maybe uh, like turn the, the saturation of the color down. So there's this kind of right. wear to them that's quite nice as well. Yeah, the sun and, and has bleached them out and the salt has had their effect. And, you know, the, for me, the best objects are the ones where nature has enacted on it. So yeah. where you have barnacles growing on things. So. Again, that's the flip side of the Cabinet of Wonder piece where you would mm -hmm. take a rhinoceros horn and then you would gild it with silver and build a stand for it and turn it into a drinking yeah. cup. So, that, so that's, you know, the artificial taking over the natural. This is the, na this is the artificial work, uh, you know, which the nature is itself hijacking by, mm -hmm. by building incrustations on it. Yeah. Um, let's talk a little bit about biography. Um, you sure. mentioned that uh, you grew up in Massachusetts. Uh, what in Fairhaven? Is that I, where I'm, yeah, I'm from Fairhaven in New Bedford. Okay, which is 
sort of between uh, Providence, Rhode Island, and, and like the, the start of Cape Cod. Am exactly. I? Am I? Yeah, is that accurate? That's exactly right. Do you remember? Um, what your sort of introduction to art was growing up there. I mean, you're, you, there's some significant distance between these sort of art hubs. Yeah. I mean, you're not too far from Boston. I know there were some art museums in Providence, but... You know, my family yeah. were not art people. You know, my family were not literary people. There was, I grew up in a home without books. Mm-hmm. You know, we had one, The Golden Guide to the Seashore. That was the one book in my house. Mm-hmm. My mother, you know, left school at 16 and went into the textile factories. She certainly never read a book in her life. Uh, my father certainly didn't read a book in, during my lifetime. Uh, so I'm not, you know, it, they were not museum people. They were not art people. Uh, and it's not an area where there were, an in, you know, there's culture there everywhere. It's just yeah. not necessarily bracketed and framed as culture. Right. Um, so, Big whaling uh, yeah. industry in New yeah. Bedford, right? And so the Whaling Museum is, is the place right. where one encounters... Um, culture and it and, and the Welling Museum is a really interesting museum because it is an art museum it has a wonderful collection of Hudson River School painters it is a uh, you know it is a natural history museum it talks a lot about the uh, physiology of whales it is a social history museum it is a folk art museum it has a mm-hmm. vast collection of scrimshaw and vernacular arts uh, and so it's all of these things balled up into one which I always imagined every museum could right. be and should be. Well, right. Why why, why create these divisions between the museums? Yeah. So that was the place where I saw my first painting of significance, William Bradford's Sealers on the Ice, which is a you know, spectacular um, Hudson River School painting of, the, of this dramatic scene of a ship burning trapped in the Arctic. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, it, it was, uh, you know, this place where it seemed like art and natural history and all these things could work very well together mm-hmm. you know it is a place where you have to tell the narrative of the the romance and adventure of yankee whaling which is kind of a sad and hard story to yeah, tell yeah, today yeah. right i mean it's not a story that people are very receptive to now but that's what it was built to heroicize right i feel like i read somewhere that uh, another sort of early influence um, were scientific il- illustrations. And this is something that I identified with because I myself is from, I'm from New England too. I grew up in New Hampshire. All right. And I didn't really have access to contemporary art. And my family did not take me to art museums. I didn't really go to my first art museum until I went to college. So my entrance into art were picture books, right. comic books, skateboard graphics, record covers. Talk about how book illustration and stuff sort of helped you sort of find a way, pathway into into the world of art. Yeah, certainly. And, and you know, I mean, for me, the library and, and more specifically the bookmobile mm, yes. uh, were, were really special things for me. And also, um, you know, there, there was the Great Time Life series, um, uh, which depicted the history of Earth, right? And in that is the pull-out... Uh, di- uh, the pull-out... Um, mural uh, that is the one that at the Peabody Museum of the Age of Reptiles Mm -hmm. painted by Rudolf Zallinger you know um, so it's this great depiction of of a landscape covered in dinosaurs and and something that a lot of uh, young boys would have had in their bedroom tacked up to the wall and so when I uh, was looking at art schools I realized that Rudolf Zallinger taught at the Hartford Art School of the University of Hartford and that put it on my list as schools I wanted to, to apply to and, and that's the school I eventually went to and 
Was he teaching there? He was teaching did there. Did you take his classes? I, I, you know, I, I did not. Oh, because no. the first day of art school, I met uh, Jack Goldstein, and I met Christopher Horton and a sort of other approach to art making, and they took me to see the installation of um, the Salouette at the Wadsworth Athenaeum, and th- that exhibition with Saul's list of... of um, uh, his sort of concerns about conceptual art, that absolutely changed my life in a very different direction. Yeah. And so I thought, you know, I don't know what contemporary art is, but if this is it, sign me up. Yeah. And so I, I was very, very influenced by that. Mm-hmm. You know, another, I think, key ingredient in your work is the sense of curiosity that comes through um, and the sense of wonder. Can you talk about sort of how you chase that and, and how you remain curious as you sort of soldier on through your practice well i you know i i am in a fortunate situation that i often have to collaborate with people from other disciplines and and often from the scientific disciplines who have vast amounts of knowledge and uh and have a, a passion but it's not necessarily one that's easy to understand from the perspective of the humanities so mm-hmm. i do spend a lot of time in the back rooms of natural history museums, I, I sort of seek out those people in those places and spend a lot of time with those collections. Uh, I keep very close relationships to um, to uh, other artists like Alexis Rockman and and Bob Brain and James Prozac, who who share this sort of interest. And we have a um, almost a sort of unofficial club of people who uh, you know have a certain number of references yeah. and and. Yeah. Uh, and uh, uh, and younger artists like David Brooks, and we also go on expeditions, and we have uh, uh, we we still are very interested in engaging not just with the nature as a discursive field, but with nature as an actual place. And, yeah. And so that that keeps me very engaged, and also the fact that I'm just constantly traveling, and every project is a new project, right. and uh, you know I'm just not built for a studio practice. Yeah. I'm not someone who. Um, um, who can do nine to five and an easel? It's just not my style. Right, so, right, right. so for me, what's really generative for me, again, is sight, and that sight also includes people, and it includes new information, and it includes uh, exciting institutions, and so, um, you know, that's that's what keeps my energy going. And also, I, I dip in and out of the academy as well. Yeah. So I, you know. I, I don't have a, a full-time teaching job and, and don't want one, and, but I do um, visiting positions and I am mm-hmm. a mentor at Columbia. And those things are, that's sort of teaching in a way that continues to be inspiring to me. And, I, sure. and I, I think having a dialogue with younger artists is essential for me. Yeah, I mean, this is a good spot to, to maybe talk about Mildred's Lane. Yeah. Um, this is a, another project that you work on. Why don't you tell listeners what Mildred Lane is? So Mildred's Lane is a, a sort of, artist residency think tank which of course is not just for artists but also for architects and landscape architects and folklorists and uh, and uh, people who want to engage with uh, the natural world mm-hmm. and uh, um, and it's in uh, rural Pennsylvania it's a beautiful hundred acre spot in rural Pennsylvania and unlike other residencies where you come and you um, uh, you know, you're sort of pampered, and they deliver lunch to your yeah. door, and you do a deep dive in your own practice. And you get your own space. Yeah, yeah. At Mildred's and you're Lane, isolated usually. Maybe yeah. you come together for mealtime, but at Mildred's Lane, we try to get people to leave their own practice at the gate, 
and to learn something else by working as a team in uh, in collaboration with uh, usually a group of master scholars that will include an artist, but also perhaps a sociologist or a, an art historian or an architect, and um, to work on something together that, that materializes either as a publication or as a building or as an exhibition or as a pond even. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and so there's a lot of different projects and a lot. And I think, you know, part of I, I went to art school at a time where it was extremely exciting and there was a lot of um, hanging out yeah. that was very productive uh, amongst the students, but also with the faculty and in a way that is really not encouraged in fact is highly discouraged today so 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 that kind of introduction to the culture of being an artist is is hard to find in the academy now Mm -hmm. uh and so miserable slain is a way our way of kind of restoring and when i say art it's it's j morgan pewitt is is my partner on mildred's lane she is is uh you know uh she's really the active director she's the one who really runs the 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 daily stuff there and has uh, has the vision for where that place is going, and so I certainly have my hands still in the mix. But um, I think it's it's really Morgan is is uh, is the visionary there. Right. Um, one, another one of the reoccurring questions that I bring up in these conversations is the act of being an artist and and the the sort of bravery of being an artist and the sort of courageousness that comes with being an artist. How do you feel about those terms as we as I connect them to, to the idea of being an artist and the sort of vulnerability that's associated with it and putting ourselves out there in the way we do? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that that's very real. You mm-hmm. know, uh, you know, um, my wife is also Dana Sherwood is also an artist. And, and, you know, we kind of live on an edge that I think a lot of people would be very uncomfortable with. Yeah. Right. And uh you know the the financial insecurity, right. the instability, the inability to do long term planning. If that if those things would, you know, would drive you nuts. If if you need some kind of stability, maybe this isn't the place for you. Maybe this isn't the profession for you because there's just a lot of that. And and even though I've been practicing as an artist for a long time, there is zero security in right, this. Right. Right. I mean. We're starting to sort of weave into the what I like to call the conundrums of being an artist. You know, these sort of the economic issues and obstacles that you just described. Um, but then there's even sort of the process in which we go through both physically and emotionally to make the work. It, it sort of can wreck our bodies, or we experience all sorts of self-doubt at times and second-guessing ourselves. You know, I think it's quite common that artists their their confidence and approach with their work can sort of wane and get off track. Um, do you experience these things, and then maybe how do you how do you pull your ship straight again? Yeah, I mean there are certainly moments that are where you are in the middle of a large and complex project where you begin to doubt you're taking the right track, but it may you may be further further enough along that it's almost impossible to go back and st- and start it again and change, and you just have to follow through, realizing that this is not going to be you're not going to be able to achieve the level of perfection right. and, and engagement that you right. want to have, but you just have to go through it. I think for me, I like to step back and think about the practice as a whole. So I think when, when I was a younger artist, and I, I see this in a lot of younger artists, you want everything to be perfect. Yes. And you want to include everything you think about and care about in every work. And 
that just can't be done. Yeah, and it's also forgetting that failure is a part of this and making corrections or adjustments along the way is an important part of this. And I I think if you pull back and think about the practice Mm -hmm. as a very long-term thing, a long-term expression, uh, and you get less hung up on individual expression, you have to look at what you do as, as one long connected complex argument and uh and not be so concerned about the perfection of each expression um let's talk let's go back to your work i know um you've you've mentioned slowing down the viewing process is sometimes a strategy that you that you like to employ and hope that the viewer sort of takes that time right can you talk about that sort of generosity and sharing that you encourage with with people as they encounter your work yeah, I mean, I think that I I like to build work that, you know, is is dense, is like actually physically dense in terms of its material qualities. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot of stuff there, yeah. but but also I want it to be dense in terms of references and meaning, and some of that density is easy to like. For instance, we have next door the the lemonade stand, yes. right? You know, if you look at the lemonade stand, you'll see that there's a small collection of Dixie cups that are um, that depict dinosaurs. So. You know, when that was originally made, that is a reference to the work I had done two years before at the first Armory Fair. So, you know, that's something that's very easy to to miss, right? But it's a point of richness that um, uh, gives it a a depth. It gives a a quite simple work like that a depth, just like the fact that all of the shells are, are, you know, from New England. Man, I was blown away with the accuracy of, of the lemonade stand you've set up today in 2019 and the images I saw of it from 1994 whenever the original yeah well that's all the original it's, stuff. it's, it's the all shells are stuff. all the same yeah, the yeah, basket yeah. is still the same the yeah. paper dinosaur cups are still the yeah, same yeah amazing that you've held on to it for this yeah. long and maybe this is a, a section where we could pivot towards uh, I don't know do you ha- do you have any suggestions on how viewers could pace themselves while visiting the armory show I mean this is something that can be incredibly overwhelming. Sure, um, and, and well, yeah. I, I think you know, in the same way that going to MoMA or the Met yeah. can be overwhelming. And, yeah, exactly. You know, you come up with strategies that don't dream you're going to see the entire thing. You yeah. know, it's it's a much richer experience if you invest in a handful of things that you know are good. Mm-hmm. Right. If you come across that video, and it is going to take 20 minutes to see the whole thing, and it is, but it is remarkable, yeah. and it's and it's it's rewarding and it's worth it that investing that time is going to be a lot better for you in the long run than um, going around like you're a stamp collector and feeling like you've seen every booth right right you know so the things that speak to you just spend the most time with them and don't get caught up in this desire to uh, you know check every numbered booth off your list I I think that that's going to be better in the same way that if you go to the Metropolitan don't try to see every room. Yeah, yeah. That's really not the way to yeah. see it. We're talking it's about being surgical yeah, as opposed yeah. to like just running through everything. So I, I That's mean, sound I, advice. I, I think that that's going to make a much better experience. This is a big question, but one I wanted to ask. What do you think the primary responsibilities of an artist are? You know, I, I think being an artist is, inc- is, is it's a very diverse field, yes. right? And, and I don't, I wouldn't want to be prescriptive of that. I mean, I'm interested in art that talks about the world and its yeah. problems and allies itself with progressive social change mm-hmm. in some way. But I wouldn't be prescriptive that that's what artists should do. I also think, you know, the artist who is, you know, 
engaged in formal issues, I would support, you know, their right to continue that examination and that focus. And and the person who is, you know, working out um, biography and 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 uh, and mental health issues and and uh, I you know I would support their right to do that as well. So I I, I really wouldn't want to be prescriptive about that. I mean, I'm interested in artists who, um, you know, who engage with their moment and take on a kind of political perspective even if my own work is is about engaging in historical moments mm-hmm. and attempting to try to piece together how we got to this weird place yeah um you know i you know i i don't i think that all of these are really valid reasons and and um i would you know advocate for even the most selfish um forms of art in a way even if i'm more interested in the most social yeah yeah that's well said what's on the horizon what projects do you have coming down the line do you have a dream project that's not realized that you'd love to do well i mean the project that's coming down the line is pretty much a dream project so i i was approached by nor 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 lawrence at the star at storm king art center mm-hmm. to do a a sort of survey of my large-scale outdoor works which i always think about as as follies you know in the mm-hmm. tradition of constructing uh, buildings that have a discursive function rather than a practical function yeah. and uh, and so that there are going to be a dozen of these spread throughout the landscape at Storm King and uh, and they range from a cemetery to a bear den to a bureau of censorship to a hunting blinds and it's going to be a very dynamic way of using that landscape and you know I just think that what the the programming that Storm King has done over the last couple of years is very dynamic and has given that place a very different kind of relevance to what's happening in art today. So, so, um, you know, I, you know, for me, I think it's a really exciting, um, place to, to work. That's great. Uh, when is that going to be? When is that going to open? It opens May 3rd. Oh, so So just down the road. Oh yeah. It's really breathing down my neck. That, (laughs) uh, that's great. I'm, I'm, I will put that on my calendar to go see. Yeah, please do. Uh, well, Mark, this has been great. I really appreciate you taking the time to sit down and talk with me. Um, it's been great learning about your work, and, and thanks for sharing your, your memories of, of the Army show back when it first started. Thanks. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. We've made it to the end. A quick reminder that Deep Color is independently produced and a free resource for listeners. Help support and sustain this project by making a donation online at deepcolorpodcast.com. You can also learn more about each contributing artist, find links to their online portfolios, and access the archive of past recordings. Be sure to share this project within your community and subscribe and rate in Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or Stitcher. Thanks for listening and check back soon for a new episode.